listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the Mighty Program. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Please move all the way to the right. No flash photography. Please keep your hands inside the radio program for the duration of the ride. This is for your own protection. It is back to school time and back to the bully tactics between both teachers and government in this province. And away we go. The teachers' unions have slammed the Ford government with a new TV ad campaign. Shot in black and white, it's a 30-second commercial from the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. And it features photographs of empty school hallways and classrooms, warns that the changes will lead to lower graduation rates, urges viewers to tell Doug Ford to stop the cuts. Now, this all comes... Shortly after the newly minted education minister, Stephen Lecce, held that news conference in Scarborough to reassure parents that classes will only be slightly larger when school resumes next week. At an average of 22 and a half students in grade 9 through 12, that is up from 22 in June, and one additional student in grades 4 to 8, the numbers remain effectively the same as last year, was the quote from the education minister. That was widely criticized by the education unions for downplaying teacher cuts, given that, given that school boards have already laid off many teachers and pared down course offerings. And speaking of pairing, pair it all with mass, math test for future teachers. This from the Globe and Mail. The Ontario government has expanded the role of the agency that administers standardized tests, that's EQAO, to start testing future teachers in math before they can receive their teaching license. At least 70% of the new math proficiency test will assess teacher candidates on content, including fractions, percentages, and other basic arithmetic. Fractions suck. The rest of the assessment will test them on how to teach the subject in the classroom. The Deputy Minister of Education revealed the details of the test to the Deans of Education at post-secondary schools in a memo sent last week that was obtained by the Globe and Mail. What does all of this mean for your kids' education beginning next week? On the line, Harvey Bischoff, who is the head of the Ontario Secondary Schools Teachers Federation. Hi, Harvey. Good afternoon, Alan. Why go on the offensive with this ad at this point? I, I, so I, I disagree with that characterization. I, I don't think it's the offensive. I think the going on the offensive occurred on March the 15th when the government announced that they were going to slash one out of every four high school teaching position over the next four years. And Minister Lecce's announcement last week simply confirmed that that is their long-term in- intention. So... You know, in essence, his announcement last Thursday was things aren't as bad now as they will be four years down the road. Well, we always understood that things will be much worse when fully one out of every four teachers in high school uh, no longer has a has a position. We have seen this government change course, reverse course on a number of issues. Do you have hope that it will do so on this one? Look, I, I have to be hopeful. Uh, otherwise, uh, otherwise, we'll have to despair about the state of Ontario's education system. So we're going to get to the bargaining table as quickly as we can. We'll put forward proposals that are good for Ontario students and the and the system. 
and we'll hope they're listening. Uh, we won't be able to know for sure until we actually have that face-to-face opportunity. Where are we in terms of negotiations? Give me an update on that. So right now we're just waiting for a decision from the Labour Board as to what will be negotiated at the central bargaining table on behalf of all of my members around the province at once. Uh, There is also, um, if it's not negotiated then centrally, it is dealt with at local bargaining tables with school boards all across the province. But right now we're waiting for the Labour Board to issue that ruling um, after a hearing that we had, uh, had last week. The Minister of Education actually has a news conference later this afternoon, I believe at 1 o'clock. Do you have any sense of what's uh, coming down the pipe? Um, As I understand it, it is the announcement of a new school build. Um, I don't think it's anything that has any any province-wide impacts, but, um, you know, he's surprised us before, I guess. Well, then let's pivot to this news about um, testing for future teachers and your reaction to that. I mean, it seems to me, I mean, it's the most ineffective and inefficient use of money within the education system that I can imagine. Ontario's high school teachers are teach in their area of, of academic or technological qualification. So if you're a math teacher in Ontario, it's because you have a degree in mathematics. Um, and if, you, if you're going into teaching art or English or history, it's because you have a, a background in those things and you won't be teaching math. So the idea of testing all of those teachers who won't be teaching math um, makes no sense to me. And the idea of, of, um, or, of testing math teachers who have a degree in mathematics strikes me as just a duplication. Once you're in the system, just explain this to me. Can you, can you change to be a... A, a math teacher, you know, start off as a history teacher and think, you know, I'm, I'm into math now. You could, you could earn qualifications, uh, certainly, and there are some circumstances in which um, by mutual consent, that is the consent of the teacher and the consent of the administrator, the principal in the building, um, you, could teach, you could teach math. And, you know, even though I'm an, I'm an English teacher by background, I've, I've taught one math course in my life. Um, Did you understand it? Was it? A grade 10, Did you understand you know, fractions? Math course, and I have first-year university calculus, algebra, physics, so it really wasn't an issue. <laughs> See, any, if there's anybody teaching a journalism course anywhere in the school system, do not let them teach math at all. Fair enough. <laughs> um, what do you see going forward here? We seem to be on a collision course between the unions, and I will read to you a headline, if I might, from from a little while ago, where you actually uh, said the following, I just want to get it from here, the head of Ontario's high school teachers, quote, says he's going to, pardon me, vow to, quote, cultivate resistance. And I guess I, I raise that because it seems that the temperature on both sides is going nowhere but up, and that eventually this is going to come to loggerheads and students once again will be caught in the middle. So, so let me unpack that a little bit for you. I want to make sure that not only uh, my members, but members of the public understand um, the depth of the cuts that this government is talking about. One out of every four high school teachers, 30,000 lost course options to students four years from now, um, mandatory four e-learning credits. All of those things are, are significant, will have significant negative impacts on the system. I want to make sure that people understand that and, and push back against the decision makers who are who are taking us down this path that will ultimately 
hurt Ontario's economy. So that's certainly what I mean by cultivating resistance. Um, I'm not the least bit uh, embarrassed by that. In fact, as an educator, I'd be embarrassed if we weren't taking a position to defend the system. Does cultivate resistance include kids and classes? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It never does. It never has. Um, classes are there for the teaching of curriculum and for, you know, supporting students. Uh, they're not there to be used for uh, for any other uh, political messages. So armbands, black shirts, that sort of stuff, that's all off the table for you and your union? Oh, members, you know, I mean, members decided some time ago, and I can tell you this didn't come out of the out of the provincial office. This was members deciding together that they wanted to wear uh, red on Fridays to demonstrate their, um, you know, their unity, that they were together in, in, in fighting against these cuts. So, you know, those sort of things may happen, but um, I don't think the color of, a, of somebody's article of clothing in a classroom has an impact on a student. But the students are aware that all the teachers are wearing red for a particular reason. That doesn't strike you as cultivating resistance among students? No, no, I, I, I wouldn't agree with that characterization. Um, as long as teachers are appropriately focused on the curriculum and their students' well-being, then, then they're, uh, you know, they're doing what they should do as professionals. What else is up your sleeves in terms of uh, commercials? And by the way, thank you for buying ad time. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. You, are you going to spend any more money? Because I could use it. Are you going to spend um, by I, any more ads? I, I didn't realize that you were the, the direct recipient, but regardless, um, you know, to the extent that we need to educate the public, we'll continue to look at, um, at putting out messages so that people understand the road this government's going down. Harvey Bischoff is the head of the Ontario Secondary Teachers Federation, Secondary School Teachers Federation. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being on. My pleasure. Thanks, Alan. You know, I do. You know, we have a federal election coming up, too. That's always good for the cash, for the bottom line. Yeah, you're right. I don't actually, you know, take the cash off the table. But, you know, when the bottom line, when the share price goes up, let's just say I sleep a little better at night. Welcome back to the program. A little breaking news on the whole billboard gate, the old Maxime Bernier billboard brouhaha. Ha ha. Seems like a giant joke on all of us, giving this guy free publicity. But it continues. This now from the Canadian press has just come in. The third-party advertising group behind billboards promoting Maxime Bernier and his stance on immigration is now distancing itself from the message, saying it never signed off on the controversial campaign. We completely disavow any sympathy or or support for the views expressed by donors who paid for and selected the content of the advertising. Unquote that from the head of True North Strong and Free Advertising Corp., who was apparently the person or the company or the organization that put up the billboards. But I didn't bring up the billboards. Who put up the billboards? I bet it was a totalitarian leftist mob, I'll tell you. Those totalitarian leftist mobs. Watch out for those. Nasty. The big news out of Toronto and the Toronto Police Services Board is the announcement that the police of chief, the police chief, pardon me, Mark Saunders, is having his term extended. This is the quote from the release. The Toronto Police Services Board 
is pleased to announce that it has made the decision to renew the appointment of Chief Mark Saunders for an additional year. Chief Saunders' term of office will be extended and now concludes April 30th, 2021. This is only the second time in the last 40 years that a chief of the Toronto Police Service will have served more than a single term. The board is confident in Chief Saunders' ability to continue to advance the organization in this final phase of his mandate, which will cap off a distinguished 38-year career with the Toronto Police Service. A couple of things I just quickly want to unpack there. That line about the only the second time in the last 40 years that a chief of the Toronto Police Service has served more than a single term, true, the last time it happened, it was with, with Bill Blair. Except for Bill Blair got a second five-year term. This is a one-year extension. And if you read through the announcement and the release, it's clear that the Police Services Board will not entertain the idea of another extension. It pretty much says, as it says here, it will cap off a distinguished 38-year career, as in one more year and that's that. Mike McCormick is head of the Toronto Police Association, represents the officers in the front lines who have disagreed mightily with the police chief. He joins me on the line, and Mike, I'll just begin with what is your reaction to this extension? Well, my reaction is uh, we're surprised. Um, I think when you uh, just said that you were going to unpack the, the police service board statement, I think you hit the nail right on the head. Um, that's the way we interpret that release as well. Um, and, you know, this chief has uh, another year to straighten out a big mess. So we're going to have to see what he can do over the next year to straighten out the mess that we have in policing right now. So, you know, we're looking forward to seeing what the, the process is going to be, who the next chief is going to be. But uh, to your point, exactly what you're saying, um, you know, clearly uh, this is an exit uh, strategy and um, you know when we have a police force or sorry police services we call it these days a police service with the lowest morale that we've seen in years uh, decades uh, we have the chronic understaffing problem we have seen a steady increase in shooting victims uh, violent crimes in the city uh, over the last years we've seen uh, you know last year peaking uh, almost 586 or more shooting victims, and this year, so far, we're 18% above that. So, you know, it's hardly a glowing endorsement, but, uh, you know, we're going to see and work through uh, how to get to the next chief, uh, which we are looking forward to doing to um, get the changes that we need to effectively police and uh, the communities and also for officer safety and public safety. We're speaking with Mike McCormick, who is head of the Toronto Police Association, reacting to the extension for Mark Saunders, who will continue as Toronto's top cop for an extra year. Interesting how how you see that, that you see as an extension as an exit strategy and, and not as an endorsement of the job he has done. But I think for context, people need to understand is that the chief has been leading a massive reorganization that has put him at loggerheads with your organization. So 
help people as best as we can understand here what the nuance is in terms of the fight you have with him and the fact that he's now got another year. Yeah, I mean, again, like when you a reorganization or whatever you want to call it, modernization, transformation, the association, like you know, we're not dinosaurs. We're not stuck in the past. We know you always have to move forward. We look at the best practices and all these great words and motherhood statements and business reorg and everything else. So we understand all of that. But what we saw here and what our issue is with, with the chief is that what we've seen is a hiring freeze, a promotional freeze. So, for instance, uh, where we were in 2000. 2010 to, to today, in a city that has been growing exponentially, we have 25% less officers and civilians. That's almost a thousand less police officers out on the street. So we have a diminished capacity for our officers and our civilians who support them to go out there and do this stuff like gather intelligence. So our officers right now are going from call to call to call, and they're burned out, and they're constantly being asked to do more with less. And quite frankly, they're fed up of it. And what we've seen is a poorly executed um, business plan or modernization plan. So our issue with the chief is that the, the staffing and the ability for us to investigate and, and uh, keep public safety, officer safety, has been diminished by the lack of resources uh, that we've uh, uh, that that has occurred under this chief's tenure. And you look at it over a four-year uh, period, but like I say, you, you've gone from you know, 242 shooting victims in a year to over 586. And we're going to be 18% above that right now. And every day there's gunplay in the street. So, you know, if this is a report card, I, I want to see the A's, and I haven't seen too many. I think a lot of people will note that Peter Slowly just this week was um, was sworn in. I, I believe he was sworn in as police chief, or at least the announcement was made. Yep. Yeah, it was Ottawa, the announcement. Yeah. Pardon me. Um, yeah, yeah, and. Obviously, Mr. Slowly uh, was considered to be a front-runner for the position when Mark Saunders got it, and then uh, Mr. Slowly, who, when he was in the forest, was seen to somewhat criticize him, and then now he's off in Ottawa. You think you would have been better off? You think Toronto Police would have been better off with Peter Slowly at the helm? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't really think so peter like we worked with for years and stuff had some uh very different ideas about policing as well so i mean in, in retrospect i don't think so but you know um our, i can tell you right now that our membership has not um we did a vote of non-confidence in this chief we've had a lot as you alluded to a lot of disputes with this chief and again you know not around that we want more money we want more and more and more it's just we wanted to be able to police the, the communities and our officers and our civilians take this very seriously uh, as they should and have the resources to do it. And, and you know, that was our issue. So, you know, I, I can tell you right now, uh, I've heard from many of our members since this release has gone out and they're disappointed that there's been an extension, but they understand that, you know, as you said, there's a finality to this as well. Mike McCormick is the head of the Toronto Police Association reacting to the announcement this morning that Mark Saunders will continue as Toronto Police Chief for another year. Mike, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me, and take care. Let's see what the future holds. I want to talk a little bit about sex education. You know how you split those two? He's like, oh, oh, yeah, oh. I want to read from you a little bit from the Toronto Star, Martin Redcon writing in the Star. And, and the reason I like to quote Martin, and I often like to have him on this program, is he is a, 
an influencer, for a lack of a better word. He fortunately does not post a lot of selfies of himself in the bathroom on Instagram. Not that kind of influencer. Uh, please, Martin, do not do that. But he does, what he writes tends to crystallize uh, a lot of thought inside the Beltway, for lack of a better term, at Queen's Park. And he writes about uh, Doug Ford and sex ed. And, of course, you know that recently the government reintroduced a new sex ed curriculum that for a lot of people thought, well, wait a second, that, that looks a whole lot like the one we had before, doesn't it, sir? Well, Martin writes that politics, like sex, is all about positioning. After whipping up people's passions, Ford is now repositioning himself as the soul of sweet reason. Despite the high hopes of socially conservative parents that Ford would ride to their rescue, he was always going to take them and us for a ride. The question was how far Ford would bend himself out of shape to score political points along the way. Quote, I know there are extremes on both sides that wanted to go one way and wanted to go the other, but I also remember mentioning to the media that it was not going to be drastic changes, unquote, Ford told reporters this month, suddenly stricken with political amnesia. Reading from Martin Reg Khan in the Toronto Star, I just want to wrap up here with him saying, the so-called teacher prompts on masturbation have been tweaked too. You remember this? I know this because I read the 2015 curriculum backwards and forwards, and tell me, let me tell you, folks, it's dull. It ain't sexy. But there were these prompts in there. These were these things that were not actually part of the curriculum, but in italics that would be instructive for teachers to say, for example, you could say this. And that, those are the elements that many social conservatives and many opponents to the curriculum seized upon to say this goes too far. So the so-called teacher prompts on masturbation have been tweaked. They are just helpful scripts to help teachers answer any student questions. Sexual orientation is still discussed. Gender identity is delayed a bit. And consent is talked about more than ever. The fact is... It's largely the same, and all along it was politics, was it not? It was the politics to get Tanya Granick allen on side to be able to win with a wedge issue, to narrowly defeat Christine Elliott, to take the leadership, and then continue to signal that these things, this Kathleen Wynne social experiment with our kids, well, it was not on. It would not go. It would not stand. And once in power, well, we've studied it, and guess what? <laughs> well, we've got a white paper here, and it says it's all good. Everything's the same. Meet the, meet the new boss, folks. Same as the old boss. Welcome back to the program, and on Tuesday, on this midday, time to check in on some of the reasons why the world is about to end. It's, it's going to end sooner or later. Civilization, you know, dystopia is coming our way, but let's check in. Let's, here's story number one. Death from above is coming. It's only a matter of time, folks. The good news, though, is now we'll know. 
Because NASA is investing millions of dollars to gain knowledge about asteroids. Here's Chuck Silverstein. NASA's just invested $19 million into the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico to learn more about asteroids to see if any pose a hazard to Earth or if any are worth exploring in future space missions for science. Science. We're not going to explore them. We're going to colonize them. And we're going to need to. You know why? Well, this is from Bloomberg. African swine fever. Story number two about why the world is ending. The deadly pig virus that jumped from Africa to Europe is now ravaging China's $128 billion pork industry and spreading to other Asian countries. It's unprecedented. A disaster. Beijing has slaughtered millions of pigs already, but that has not stopped African swine fever. The number of pigs in China that will fatten up this year is predicted to fall by 134 million or 20%. By the way, that's just a fancy way of saying kill. When they say this is the number of pigs we're going to fatten, yeah. This is the worst annual slump since the U.S. Departure of Agriculture began counting China's pigs in the mid-70s. Now, the pig virus doesn't harm humans, even if you eat the tainted pork. The fatality rate in pigs means it could destroy the region's entire pork industry. So there. Another reason why the world is ending, you will not be able to get bacon. Keep it down! The world is ending story number three, and this is an ongoing update and much more serious. G7 nations are pledging to help the raging wildfires in the Amazon rainforest, but Brazil's president is rejecting it because of a diplomatic spat with the French president. Here's reporter Matt Gutman with more. On Monday, G7 nations collectively pledged $40 million to help save the Amazon. But many say it isn't nearly enough. Overnight, protesters across Brazil begging for the world's help. But Brazilian officials saying overnight they'll reject the offer. Facing international criticism, it hasn't done enough. Brazil this week began to deploy 44,000 troops and C-130 water tankers. Now, Brazil's president has slightly walked back that initial rejection of the $22.2 million package. The president, Bolsonaro, said any consideration of the aid remained tied up with that dispute with the French president. Quote, this is Bolsonaro, before speaking or accepting anything from France, even if it comes from the best possible intentions, he must retract his words. Then we can talk. That's what he said to journalists. This, a complaint over that the French president has challenged the credibility of the Brazilian president and has attacked Brazil's sovereignty. All of this while the fires burn. Nicolas Saldias is a professor at the University of Toronto at the Woodrow Wilson Center and joins me on the line to talk more about what is happening in Brazil, the politics around the rainforest. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So, is this just a small spat, keeping the millions of dollars from going to the front lines to fight these fires? Uh, I would say this is a actually long-term problem between Brazil and the European Union, in particular Macron. So, not so long ago, about two months ago, Brazil was on the cusp of signing a free trade agreement with the EU, and one of the reasons that it was not going to be passed was because of opposition that Macron had to Brazil's 
you know, anti-environmental policies that Bolsonaro has been promoting. Uh, they eventually did sign the free trade agreement, but now Macron says that he's going to uh, retract himself from that agreement because of Bolsonaro's uh, particular environmental policies. So this is not a new thing. This has actually has been going on for a while. What is new is the personal attacks actually between Bolsonaro and Macron. Um, Bolsonaro has attacked uh, Macron's wife, implying that his wife is better looking. Unfortunately, it's very you know unfortunate comments. And so you have a, now a personalization of the conflict, and Bolsonaro has been less than mature when it comes to these sorts of issues, unfortunately. And what does that mean about actually getting this money on the ground? I mean, Macron has made the point that, listen, this money just isn't going to Brazil, it's going to these other countries that are also fighting the same sort of thing. But Brazil, obviously, if they're not on board, I mean, what good will it do? So to be fair to Brazil, uh, the country has actually accepted uh, offers of assistance from other countries um, in the region, like Argentina and Israel. So it's not like Brazil's not saying uh, yes to it, uh, sorry, no to every type of um, assistance. He's particularly saying no to the French. And, you know, it's not simply personal, actually, I'd like to add on top of that as well, the fact that from Brazil's perspective, um, even within people within his own cabinet, the statements of Macron are seen as kind of insulting um, in the sense that Macron talks about the Amazon rainforest as our rainforest. But the, from a Brazilian perspective, the Amazon rainforest is Brazil's rainforest. And there was a lot of uh, anger actually expressed towards Macron because he made the Amazon issue a major point of contention at the G7, but Brazil wasn't invited. And so it was it's seen and it's being framed by Bolsonaro and not just Bolsonaro, other people in Brazil as well, as an example of a neo-colonial um, discourse uh, that doesn't make any friends actually in Brazil. So it's not just a one-way street. Bolsonaro is not the only one who's been making unforced errors when it comes to the politics of the Amazon. It's certainly Macron, I think, needs to understand that this is a very sensitive issue in Brazil. And he needs to reach out to the Brazilians in a way that doesn't alienate the Brazilians. And unfortunately, so far, he hasn't done that either. Has this strengthened Bolsonaro's case and, and his support in Brazil? Hard to say. Um, I would say that Bolsonaro right now is not very popular as a president. His approval ratings are way down. We don't. I don't know what the latest numbers are right now. After this spat, it's too early to tell. Um, he could possibly, you know, um, rally his base with a nationalist um, discourse that he's been using. But also against him is the fact that you do have raging wildfires in, in, in the country, which are palatable in cities like Sao Paulo, where people are breathing in the smoke from the Amazon. So it's, it's hard to tell where that's actually going to end up. But certainly the Bolsonaro administration is trying its best to spin this in its, in its favor. Meanwhile, much of the world is looking at Bolsonaro's policies as the, as the cause or, or the root cause of this flare-up. Pardon, pardon that pun. It, how much truth to it is? How much truth is there to that? There is a there is truth to that, but it would be wrong to say that Brazil is the only country experiencing massive wildfires. Uh, you're seeing the same thing happening in Venezuela. You're seeing a lot of it happening in, in Bolivia as well. In Bolivia's case as well, it was due to some uh, reforms that the government put into place to ease, um, you know, uh, deforestation. So this is not 
necessarily only a Brazil problem, but certainly Brazil was at the forefront at, of protecting the Amazon in the previous administrations and Bolsonaro's policies of liberal of, of freeing the capacity of um, loggers and the agricultural sector to clear these forests has raised alarms. Um, you know, the deforestation rate has gone up by, I think, I believe, 80 percent from last year. So that's a significant increase, although it is, to be fair, still significantly lower than it was in the 1990s. So you're starting from a lower base, but you do have a large increase in, 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 um, in fires. And the New York Times did note that most of the fires are actually happening on, already, on land that's already been deforested. Although, nevertheless, there are areas, obviously, that are being deforested. So it's a, it's a very complicated story. It's not, it's not a one-way obvious answer. But nevertheless, you know, uh, no one wins when you have a significant increase in global CO2 emissions from, from mass burnings anywhere. And so it's in all our interest to ensure that um, something is done. But it has to be done in a cooperative way. In a, way, in a cooperative way, if you're going to impose or be seen as imposing, you know, um, yourself on others, it's not going to work. It's, it's a bad, bad strategy. Nicholas Saldias, he is a professor with the University of Toronto at the Woodrow Wilson Centre and has been helping us understand a little bit more about the truth of what really is going on between France and Brazil. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Scooters! Oh my God, scooters! Thugs on scooters, meth gators on scooters, all of it happening. Scooters are coming to Toronto, e-scooters. We talk about this a lot on the radio program because I, 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 I like these things, but they terrify me. And there's a lot of reason to be frightened of them. If you've traveled to the Pacific uh, Northwest, if you've traveled to San Francisco, any of those areas, they're everywhere. They're just lying on the ground. Scooters everywhere. If scooters were zombies, we'd be in trouble. You know what I mean? Leave that. Well, now, of course, last week we got this news that Bird Canada, which has already moved into the Calgary and Edmonton area with a pilot project, it's going to now have a two-week pilot project for these e-scooters in the distillery district, and this is going to happen in early September. Let me just say this. Cobblestone streets. That is not going to be comfortable. But Bird Canada has not shared any additional details about how many scooters, how many people are going to access them, the boundaries, all the rest of that. Well, what's the mayor got to say about all of this? Mr. Chief Magistrate, could you just scoot over this way, Johnny? What do you got? I don't view the scooter thing as an inevitability, and so uh, I'm glad there's going to be a small pilot project because it does give us a chance to see how this works, but for me, there are a lot of questions that have to be answered and a lot of rules that I think we're going to have to put, uh, put in place. Now, e-scooter sharing systems work similar to those bike share things that we already have in the city. You pick up the scooter, you use the app to unlock them, and then you're charged a fee for the time you use on the scooter. But the key difference is here is scooters do not go back to any dock. You don't have to put them back into a dock like you have to do with the bikes. So essentially, you just ride up to where you're going, drop the thing, and run in. And that's a big issue and has been troublesome for American cities that seem to have been caught unaware 
of the sort of guerrilla tactics used by this these kind of companies in the U.S., very much akin to the way Uber used to move into to cities. So what's the mayor think about that? I'm not big on, on having rules on every area of life, but on this kind of thing where I've seen the disruption that is possible if you don't do this properly, I will certainly be one who will be saying that we're going to have to do this very carefully uh, and, and uh, make sure that we do it in a way that respects the public interest overall. Uh, and so we'll see how it goes. Here is the reality of, of all of this. If you've seen these things in service in American cities, you can see that there is a need. These, you know, short trips, because you can imagine being able to get around from downtown to downtown, not having to worry about, you know, getting in a car or getting an Uber or and it's just, you know, getting the bikes a hassle and it doesn't go back. In the So the fact is, folks, they're coming. And I just don't think there's any way we can stop it. We are a major metropolis, and we're just not going to be able to do the sort of thing that some smaller cities have done and said, nope, no Uber here. Nope, not allowed. They can't have that. So if they're coming, what are we going to do, Mayor? They are left all over the place and create utter chaos for sidewalks and for pedestrians and for just people trying to live in a big city. And so uh, I'm glad there's going to be a small pilot project because it does give us a chance to see how this works. But for me, there are a lot of questions that have to be answered and a lot of rules that I think we're going to have to put, uh, put in place. Rules, I'll tell you. Rules. I don't know if the rules are going to help. Because I've seen, you know, American cities have tried to get rules in place, and it just has not helped. So that's something to keep your eye on. Here's something else to think about. Remember that old Johnny Cash chestnut, don't take your guns to town? Well, it turns out you probably shouldn't take them to church either. Mormon leaders have now changed the rules against guns in church. Most members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints already knew they were discouraged from taking their guns to church on Sunday. But the church is making sure that message is crystal clear by tweaking the policy to prohibit all lethal weapons. The previous policy called it inappropriate to have weapons on church property. The change comes one year after a fatal shooting inside a Mormon church in rural Nevada. And as religions around the country grapple with how to deal with gun violence that has spread to places of worship in recent years. I'm Walter Ratliff. That one seems like a no-brainer to me. You don't... You don't... (laughs) Turn in your hymnal to hymn 437, and whoops, I, I dropped my Glock. That's not good. Puppy mills? A battle against puppy mills is heating up again in the United States with pet stores and pet buyers both speaking out. When you bring home a new puppy, are you sure you know where it came from? In a move to cut down on puppy mills, Maryland recently passed a law that bars pet stores from selling commercially bred dogs. But several stores are suing, saying the ban could not only put them out of business, it could actually be worse for the puppies. The pet store owners say they at least get their puppies from places that are regulated, unlike online, where there are no rules when it comes to selling purebred dogs. Horror stories abound about buying puppies with problems, leading one critic to call the Internet the Wild West when it comes to pet sales. Sherry Preston, ABC News. Can we just have a ban on anybody saying that the Internet's the Wild West for anything? It's just, or maybe we just take out Wild West as a thing that we just short for. It's the Wild West. Well, it'll get replaced with anarchy. The internet is anarchy. Anarchy. Cats and dogs living together. Do you order from Uber Eats? Do you know that investors are subsidizing your meal? Did you know that? This from Quartz. 
Uber.com. Analysts expect Uber Eats to lose money on every order for at least the next five years. That report from an investment firm left a sour taste for Uber Eats this week. The report zeroed in on the economics and per-order costs. And the analysts estimate that Uber is currently losing, get this, $3.36 on every single Uber Eat order. Now, they expect that loss to shrink by 2024, but didn't say anything about when the food delivery business might actually turn a profit. And so all of this capital venture money being raised to basically to battle this out for market share all goes to subsidize your dinner. So there, order away. From there, let's talk pizza. (laughs) Papa John's International on Tuesday named Arby's Restaurant Group. Rob Lynch, the president there, as its chief executive officer that replaces Stephen Ritchie 19 months after he took over the rule. Sir, this is an Arby's. Sending shares of the world's third largest pizza chain up 3%. No, sir, this is a Papa John's. This, of course, in the wake of the former CEO resigning in 2017 after he came under fire for criticizing the National Football League's leadership over the national anthem protests. So there you got some pizza news. All right, let's fire it up. We got a little uh, fresh. We got a little fresh and clean as I'm going to rip through some rip and reads here. We haven't done this for a while. These are some news stories that I pulled off. I barely looked at them. I'm going to read them for you right here. Let's go to Spokane, Washington, where a judge is set bound for $20,000 for a woman accused of kidnapping a car dealer during a test drive. Yeah. She was arrested on charges of kidnapping, taking a motor vehicle without permission. Uh, The Dave Smith Nissan employee had to call for help during the test drive after the woman refused to let him out. You can't get an Uber. Hey, can't get a scooter. Get one of those. Uh, In the Czech Republic, a type of critically endangered frog that is the main ingredient in a smoothie-type health drink in Peru is being saved from extinction with the help from a zoo in the Czech Republic. A Titicaca water frog. That's right. I said that on the air, people. It's Titicata Water Frog. It's a breeding program at the Prog Zoo. Produced a first batch of tadpoles last month. Other zoos in Europe are hoping to follow. The backup populations are necessary because Lake, Lake Titicaca is the only place where the frogs have been found. And over-harvesting is a threat. Get me some of that Peruvian frog juice. Washington State, Port Angeles, the North Olympic Library System has eliminated fines for overdue books and other materials, joining a host of other libraries that have already made that move. That fine-free policy takes effect September 1st. In Sugarland, Texas, police in suburban Houston are looking for a woman who used a power tool to break into a Botox clinic and steal anti-aging products. Surveillance cameras captured the burglary Friday night. Shows a woman approaching the locked door of the spa, then retrieves a battery-powered grinding saw from her Mercedes, and then goes in and gets skin cream. Hey, you know what? Put down the heavy machinery, maybe. That's not good for the pores. 
Fayetteville, North Carolina. A North Carolina woman has been awarded a $3.2 million libel and revenge porn lawsuit against her ex-husband and his new girlfriend. A jury on Monday sided with the woman in her case against a former U.S. Army major. The Fayette Observer reports this appears to be the first revenge porn lawsuit to reach a jury verdict in the state. Apparently, there were revealing photos of her online, spread lies that she had a eating disorder, stalked her. Nastiness. Albuquerque, New Mexico, so fresh, so clean, a New Mexico woman is facing charges after authorities say she robbed stores wearing a fake beard. Ma'am, this is an Arby's. Court documents show that she was arrested Thursday following heists at a Bunt Cake store and a Baba Tea Cafe. She was wearing a black beanie style hat in a fake brown beard. We got one time for one more. Here you go. Berlin Zoo hoping to hear the patter of tiny panda paws. The zoo posting on Facebook a few seconds of footage from an ultrasound scan of six-year-old Meng Meng. Apparently, it shows a mini panda with its heart beating fast. Mmm! Panda Nookie! Panda!